So that video introduced the subject of what we're going to be talking about today, which is fear not. And we're talking about fear in relation to the storms that life seems to send us. And eventually we're going to get to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to pre-turn there in your Bibles. I'm going to open with prayer. Father God, we're going to reach in and touch people today in places that, that they may not want to go. Places that, that strike fear, discomfort, and just produce generalized anxiety. I ask, Lord, for a special touch from your Holy Spirit today that we would be brave and confront a lot of these issues so that we can understand, Lord, that you are God over every one of them. That we would learn to trust you with all of them. And that we know no matter what, no matter how dark the valley of the shadow of death may seem, you are with us. Lord, we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be talking about fear. So what are the, some of the things we fear? Anybody want to offer up something they're afraid of? I don't like heights. It's weird I'm a fireman, but I don't like heights. I found that out when I went to Chicago as a young man, and my dad took me to the top of the Sears Tower. I'd never been that high before. And I looked out the window, and I, I was shaking, shaking so bad. And it was weird because it's only unnatural heights. I could stand on the side of the mountain like this and be fine, but get me up in a tall building, and I get scared. One of the reasons I went to work at Great America was to get on the roller coasters to conquer that fear of heights. And I haven't really conquered it. I, I don't even like getting up on a ladder to change light bulb here. But uh, for some reason, yeah, fear. One of my fears is a fear of heights. How about anybody else? What are you afraid of, Jennifer? Oh. Yeah, see, Granddad Bluff doesn't bother me at all. But if it was a building that tall, yeah, I would, for some reason. Anybody else want to offer up a, something they're afraid of? Claustrophobic. You're claustrophobic? Tight spaces? I don't like that either. Part of firefighter training is going and having to uh, remove half of your equipment and shove it in front of you and, and go like this to get, to get through stuff. Yeah, I didn't like that. Busting out a wall and having to fit between the, the, the joists. Yeah, we have to do that too. I didn't like that. I had that pounding in my chest when I was doing that, but I, I still got through it. Yeah. Yeah, not the mass, just that, that feeling that I'm going to be stuck. Yeah, so I get it. Reminds you of something you don't like to think about, mortality. <laughs> I had three, two in my head this spring, and it really bothered me because I just couldn't get one out, and I had to go upstairs and cut it out, and I used a, a pinking shears by mistake, and then I get the hair all off of it, and it bit the heck out of my finger. And I took it out, and the three were strutting around like we got you, lady. <laughs> the birds. Yeah. <laughs> Tammy doesn't like birds either. She won't let me have a chicken because, of, because she hates birds. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, because I'm always having to go to the store for eggs, so I'm like, why don't we just get a couple chickens? They'll lay all the eggs we want. But no, she doesn't like birds. Yeah. Well, it's the same color. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about fear as one of those storms that comes into our life or a reaction to a storm that comes into our life. Now, fear can be that storm itself, or it can be an attack of the enemy of our souls, or it can just be a byproduct of it. So we're going to start today by identifying the problem of fear. And the introduction video that we had just showed various news clips about things that most of us are probably worried about, concerned about, or something that, that allows fear to well up within us. And that's actually, just as kind of a quick side note, that's actually the unfortunate status of journalism today in our country, is they play on our base emotions. And it doesn't matter if you're watching Fox, CNN, MSNBC, any of them, they are just simply trying to play to your emotions. As a journalist used to say, it said if it bleeds, it leads. And if it can produce panic or anxiety or, or get emotions going within us, all the better. The enemy of our souls is at work in all this. And the reason he does it is because if he can get you operating out of fear, you are operating in his territory. And you can be easily controlled. And that's why fear is Satan's primary tactic to becoming the person that God has called you to be. So we're going to start today by looking at the how and the why the enemy uses fear. And the first reason he uses fear is to, and the way that he gets fear going in your life is that he does it by questioning God's word to us. The devil's primary tactic is making us live in, to make us live in fear is to make us doubt God's promises. The essence of this attack is to call into question or cast doubt on those very things that are true. And that's why Jesus calls the devil the father of all lies. And the reason that he does this is because if he can place a doubt in our mind about God's word and his promises, then he gets to call God's character also into question. And once that, that doubt is planted within our spirits, it makes us fertile ground for fear to grow in. Satan hasn't changed his tactics at all. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see it was his tactic even then. The devil asked Eve, did God really say? And he phrased this in a very deliberate fashion. And his goal was to question three specific things about God to make, to make Eve start to doubt, because doubt is the seed of fear. He calls into question God's word. And it's a very important concept for us to understand about this book. This is the word of God. We have a saying in our time that, God, that a person's word is his bond. You ever heard that saying? Your word is your bond. A man is not a man unless he can keep his word. If a person cannot keep a promise or is found constantly lying about things, it calls into question the person's character, their integrity, and whether they even want to know that person. If looking into the scripture, the Gospel of John 1 verse 1 says, um, or Jesus was saying that in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's talking about God 
being His Word and how we can trust this book as the revelation of God to us. There's a quote I use quite often about truth, and it comes from Focus on the Family's apologetic curriculum called The Truth Project. And the quote is, Reality is truth as seen through the eyes of God. Think about that for a moment. Reality is truth as seen through the eyes of God. That's just a whole series of messages packed right there in one quick sentence, but it's, it's absolutely true. Who can tell us more about what is factual? Who can tell us more about what is actually true in life than the being who is all-powerful? Who can tell us more about the truth of a situation than the being who is all-present? Who can tell us more about every detail of a situation than the being who is all-knowing? That is why truth and God are intricately licked by, or linked like that. You can't separate God from his truth. Even though many denominations within Christianity are trying to do that. And this is a major issue in America where a lot of denominations are starting to question the truth in this word or they're starting to say, well, that was for then, but let me tell you what God wants for us today. God's word is unchanging. It will never change. This canon is sealed forever. The Bible says that the books will be opened at the final judgment, and this is one of the books. No additions, no subtractions. It's complete. And it's a major issue, and it's a reason that authentic biblical Christianity is dying in America. And it seems to be pushing to the side, and, and people just mock it today. Because we as a church, and I talk about a global church, not, not us, but we as a church in the United States have stopped standing for truth because we have gone and tried to be popular and relevant rather than standing for what God gave us. You see, the devil needs us to be compromised in this. Because if he compromises us, he has us. God's presence, his power, and his blessing only comes when his truth and his word is held in esteem. That's why Satan is asking, did God really say? The second thing that that questions is, is God who he says he is? The underlying question of, of Satan's temptation with Eve is, can you trust him? Can you trust him? In the case of Eve's temptation, the devil was placing doubt in her mind that said, God doesn't want you to have something. God is holding back from you. I am offering you something that God won't give. Because it will give you greater satisfaction than he will, greater joy than he can, greater fulfillment, greater peace. Just take what I have. Because God isn't good. I am. That, that, that's the poison that, that the devil was trying to sell Eve. Before we're tempted to beat up on her, let's look at her own hearts. Because any temptation that you and I fall into starts with these two points, doesn't it? Did God really mean what he said? And why is he saying it? And that brings us to the next point, and that's God's love. I once had an atheist friend of mine ask me a sincere question about faith. I work with a lot of different people. And sometimes I work with atheists, and they, they all ask me questions. And, he said, and he's very science-minded. 
And he said, if God exists, does he really love us? Or are we just a bunch of lab rats in his experiment called humanity? And I, I was originally, I was a little offended by that question. I'm like, you, you know, you, you're, I thought he was really mocking me, but he was actually being very sincere and trying to frame the question in a way that he could understand. And my reply to that question was, well, a scientist doesn't bring life to a lab rat. A scientist doesn't impart his very image onto a lab rat. God is love because he created us. And he imparted upon us his very nature and his very image. And part of being in God's image is having that higher ability to reason and that's above all other creation. And it also has something that comes with it called free will. Every single one of those tragedies that you saw up there on the screen at the beginning of the service or at the beginning of the message here was a result of someone misusing God's gift of free will. People write books and volumes and, and articles trying to explain the concept and the problem of evil. But let me give you a simple definition. The definition of evil is this. It's the misuse of God's gifts. It's the misuse and, and um, desecration of the image of God upon each one of us. Evil is either forcing your will over God's will to the harm of someone else or by exerting the importance of your existence at the expense of others. That's the world's way of doing things. But love is just the opposite. Love is showing through standing for truth. And let me tell you something, whenever you're, you're thinking about having to water something down or ever you think you have to compromise on something, Jesus never backed down from truth. Ever. There were crowds surrounding him with rocks in their hands, ready to kill him, and he never backed down. Even facing potential death, at least in the stone thrower's eyes, facing potential death, he was stood even stronger about truth. God is love, and love cannot lie. That's a very definition of love, is, is love has no lie within it. Love's primary attribute is truth, and perfect love casts out all fear. The second problem, or the second point of the problem with fear is that it teaches a false gospel. Let me explain what I mean here. Because of fear, and because of that we, we don't have, something is messing with our relationship with God, where we're not trusting Him, we're not trusting His motives, we're not trusting His character, we instead will seek out something called a functional Savior. And a functional Savior is something within this world, within this creation down here, that promises satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God's will for you. A functional Savior might be food, might be drugs, might be alcohol, might be wealth or sex or fame or position. We might even try to spiritualize our functional savior. About 20 years ago, I had a partner on the ambulance. He was a fairly new Christian, and he went to one of the, I guess you'd call it a megachurch, and he had a great need for money and possessions. That was really his God. Everything had to be the best with him. He drove a fancy car, I think it was a, like a, 
one of the fam more famous Pontiac GTOs. He had the step down from the Rolex watch. He couldn't afford a full Rolex, so he got the next best thing. He had a uh, gold-plated stethoscope, cost $800. And this is something that you would give as a gift and put on a shelf somewhere, but he actually used it because it was the best of the best of the best of the best. And he, had, he was so concerned about showing everybody that he had the best of the best of the best that it kept him from seeing God for who God really was. And we were talking about possessions and money on the way back from taking a patient to Madison from Walworth County. It's about a two-hour drive. And the subject came up about how much we should give to charity or to church or to missions or the needy and, and help people out. And he was a minimalist in that regard. The only, he said, well, the only time I need to give God money is when I need something. See, I need to like, invest it, and then God's going to give me a uh, return on my investment. That's the way he looked at, at giving um, to anything. He, he, it was an investment so God could bless him more. I said, well, I hold to the principle, which I think is the Bible's principle. I don't own a single thing. I, I can't. How can I own something I didn't make? God created everything. So I don't really own something. The only thing I can do is steward what was given to me. I, asked, I said, so he said, well, I don't believe that. I think God wants us wealthy and healthy and happy. I, you know, you can't be a child of the king and be in poverty and you, you know, all that prosperity stuff. And I said, well, how do you square that idea with a Christian in the Middle East right now or China where they are literally worshiping God at the at threat of their life? Are they somehow less Christian than we are? And he said, well, you don't understand. We have a better system here in America, and God needs to rise to the system that we are in in order to bless us. Now, he's gotten better with this. I still know him. He's gotten better with this, but at the time, he had that wide open door to let the devil put fear into his life. He lived in constant fear that somebody was messing with his car because we had to park it outside, and it was in a back alley. So he would wake up several times a night and look out the window and see if anybody's messing with his GTO. Anytime he, like, bumped his watch, he was, he was, he was oh, okay, good, it still works. Or anytime he listened to somebody with a stethoscope and it turned out they had tuberculosis or something, now he's like, oh, i got to find a cleaner so it doesn't, like, mess up the shine on the, the stethoscope. He was, he was so afraid of, of things that he had on this earth that it totally messed with his relationship and his view of God. He had a functional Savior. And the bad thing about functional Saviors is that they don't save you, they enslave you. They make you focus so much about what happens in this life that you have no thought of what is going on in the next and how your actions today are, are speaking into the future. That's why fear is actually an acronym for false evidence appearing real. You ever heard that? No. Fear is an acronym. False evidence appearing real. And that's the problem with, with functional saviors in this false gospel is it can only try to provide you with heaven on earth. And if we're really honest with ourselves, if we break everything down, majority of the choices that we have in life are pretty binary. 
It's either one thing or the other. It's left or right. It's up or down. It's also true in the spiritual. It's God's way or your way, which anything other than God's way is actually the devil's way, when you think about it. And these binary choices come with binary consequences. For example, if you want to go to Quick Trip, you want to take a walk up to Quick Trip after service, you have to go out to the corner. Now you have a choice. Do I go left or do I go right? Well, if you go left and want to go to Quick Trip, you have a very long walk to get to Arcadia. But if you go right, you'll be at Quick Trip in about seven minutes if you walk, even if you walk slow. The kingdom of God and our spiritual lives are also binary choices. God's way and not God's way. The choices that you choose to trust in on earth will reflect into eternity. If it's a false gospel built on a functional Savior, then that will also echo into eternity, potentially to your destruction. But if you trust God's word, if you trust his character, if you trust his love for you and not buy into the devil's fear tactics, you will build your house upon a rock. And none of those storms of life will be able to topple it. Amen? I want to briefly touch on the reason the devil uses fear to keep you captive. It's because there is a real consequence of fear. And that is that you will miss out on God's plan for your life. You know, it's incredible to think that everything that Jesus did for us, to save us, to, to, that he was without sin became sin for us. I say that a lot because I am still amazed every time I say it. He who was without sin became sin for us so that we can have the righteousness of God. Not only did he save us from our own mistakes, but he has an incredible plan for us. And one of the consequences that fear can have in our, our lives is that we miss out on those plans. When we begin to doubt God's truth, his goodness, or his love, then the substitute choice the devil offers becomes more attractive. And that leads to very tragic consequences in our life. Because God is truth, God is good, and God loves you so much that from eternity past, part of God, what God's plan is right now and for the entire planet involves you. He had you in mind from eternity past to fit somewhere within his kingdom for such a time as this. 1 Corinthians 2.9 puts it like this. It says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We think of that in the future, but that applies to us right here and right now. God has an awesome plan for you. But you have to put aside fear and trust him to be able to live it. The fullest life you can live is to be in the center of God's will for you. An example, let me, let me show you the way that most people in the world will live. Friday night in America, people hit the bars and have fun. They drink, they have fun, they get drunk. Then they'll spend half their time on Saturday feeling miserable. They might regret some of the things they did the night before. They look at the bank account and realize they spent $100 on something that is making them sick and that they literally flushed down the toilet. But next Friday, they do the same thing over and over again. And I get it. I used to be like one of those people. 
I used to do the same thing. But then I found out God had a plan for me. And I started living God's plan. And I found out that God's plan for us has no hangover. God's plan for us will never have us acting foolish while we're under his control. I have never regretted anything I have done under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but our actions and our obedience and our trust in him build into the foundation of our life when we go and stand before him someday. But what does this have to do with fear, you may ask? Because fear of missing out on something here on this earth will drive you to make the wrong decisions. Fear of being unpopular, fear of being left out, fear of, be, of ridicule, whatever flavor that fear comes in, it will make you gravitate away from God's plan for you. And those consequences not, touch not only you, but they also affect everyone around you. Especially if you have children. So we've looked at the causes of fear, the problem of fear, and the consequence of fear. Let's look at some of the solutions. And the solution of fear we will find in Joshua 1, verse 9. After the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea to the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Some of the versions of the Bible, particularly the older versions, like the, the King James, have some of these words to Joshua that says, Fear not. Fear not. Fear is an interesting emotion because it causes three reactions. We either want to fight, we want to flee, or we want to freeze. Think of those times in your life when you were scared. Those reactions that you might want to have. Right? Fear not! What reaction did you just have? Oh, fear. Did you freeze? Did you want to run? Or did you want to charge a pulpit thinking I was going crazy? <laughs> So how many people were thinking, how do I get out of here? You're the fleers. How many froze and hope I didn't get any crazier? You're the freezers. 
How many clenched their fists and, and wanted to fight? You're the fighters. There's nothing wrong with being a fleer or a freezer. It's just a natural, God-given instinct for self-preservation that we have. But sometimes in life, you're faced with an enemy you can't back away from. Something like fear. And then you have to learn how to fight. Anybody who's been in the service will tell you they take about 14 weeks to take people that are naturally fleers and freezers and makes them fighters. Joshua started out being an assistant to Moses. Moses led six million people out of Egypt, and a vast majority of them were fleers. The other ones were freers. Only two men, other men, were fighters. But God needed fighters to go and take the promised land. Forty years of training later, God finally had six million fighters ready to go. Joshua is now in charge of the entire nation. He's a general facing a military situation and taking on the most fortified city on the planet at that time. Jericho's walls were so thick, they had chariot races on top of them. Two to three chariots in some places could go side by side and race each other on top of these walls. I mean, that means that their walls were essentially as thick as this building here. It sat right on the Jordan River, so water was in abundance. They had natural water sources. Much of their food production and agriculture was inside the wall, so you couldn't starve them out. You can surround them all you want. You'll be there. They'd still be there today, waiting to starve them out, because it just wouldn't happen. Conquering Jericho was humanly impossible. But God was telling them to trust him. As much as, as God needed his people to be fighters, his command to Joshua is not just a command that we would say today, you need to cowboy up and be brave. He's not saying, fear not, as a command. He's not trying to, 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 to drive up that spirit, especially that's in men, that's naturally aggressive to, to, to want to rise up and do a mighty thing. God told Joshua, fear not, but it was not a command. Fear not is an invitation. Fear not is saying, Joshua, you can trust me and my word to you. Fear not is confirming, Joshua, I will be with you and no one will be able to ever stand against you. Fear not is promising, Joshua, what I have promised you here and now, simply stand and see the salvation of your God. So how do we fear not? How do we actually do this? We'll close today with a few practical steps to help us fear not during these storms of life. And number one is simply be in the Word. Be in the Word. We saw that in the video. It closed and you saw a person with a cup of coffee opening their Bible. The author of Hebrews has this practical advice for us. In Hebrews 5.11, said, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not equated with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant 
use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Learning to trust God through learning the truth of who He is and what He desires is why we keep our heads in this book. Tammy was telling me this week she started a challenge in her own life. She will not eat before she sits down and reads God's Word. She used to, you know, the first thing she did, roll out of bed, make herself some breakfast. She said, I'm not doing that anymore. I am spending time in God's Word before I eat. And hunger is a great motivator to do anything, right? It's an excellent tool for us to use even today. The second step, or second way that we can overcome fear and fear not is exist in God's presence. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is all about calling down that fire from God and His presence within our life. God's Word is not just found in the Bible, but it can be found through a living, breathing relationship with Jesus through prayer and meditation. God will speak to you in prayer. Prayer is not a one-way communication, it's a two-way communication. Joshua learned this from his mentor, Moses. Whenever Moses wasn't actively leading people or actively meeting with people, where was he? He was in the tent of meeting, spending time with God. On this Pentecost Sunday, we need to commit to be people of his presence again. Why is that important? Because when we're filled with the presence of God, we, God brings all that good stuff with him. And one of those things is his love, and perfect love casts out all fear. We just need to make an effort to be in his presence. If we can get that into our lives, no demon in hell and no temptation of man can take our eyes off the God who loves us. The last way that we can overcome fear and fear not in our lives is to be around fellow believers. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now God put those verses in the Bible not just so pastors can pad their attendance numbers or offering amounts. God strategically placed those verses in the Bible as an invitation to exist in His presence and surrounded by His people who are also experiencing His love so that we can learn together to fear not. And this is how we can live courageous lives and fear not, no matter what storm of life hits us. Amen.